You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. As we approach Revelation chapter 19, to really understand the meaning and the message and the magnitude of Revelation chapter 19, we need to go back. We need to go all the way back from the third to last chapter of the Bible in Revelation 19, all the way back to the second and third chapters of scripture in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3. In those first chapters, in Genesis chapter two, we see this picture of humanity walking in an incredibly intimate fashion with God, with nothing to be ashamed of, with nothing to hide, walking with God in the cool of the day, in the midst of a garden that he had created just for them. But then as we know, in Genesis chapter three, sin enters God's story. And as these people who had this incredible impact with this incredible relationship with God, looked at God for all he was and then decided, you know what? I'd like something else. Instead of following after and communing with this God, I would like instead to become God myself. And as pride and as sin entered God's story, it pulled apart the relationship between God and humanity. We see Genesis 3 end with this tragedy of the story of people being driven out of God's good and perfect garden, out of the presence of God, and into a life dealing with the, cause, the effects and the ramifications of sin. And that narrative, that storyline, goes all the way throughout the Old Testament. Think about again in the book of Exodus. After God's people had been in slavery and captivity in Egypt for over 400 years, God goes in and redeems them, buys them out, ransoms them out, sets them free from occupation and captivity, and is leading them on a journey towards a land that he had promised, especially for them. But as they were going out, and as Moses goes up Mount Sinai to receive a covenant from God, the people start looking around thinking, you know what? I don't know that he has it in him. And not just Moses. I don't know that God has it in him to get us out of this wilderness and where we need to go. Maybe we need to fashion for ourselves a God who can handle this better. And so they took all of their jewelry and all their gold and melted it down and formed the God they wanted in place of the God who is. And because of that, that generation didn't get to receive the promise. They all died in the wilderness as their children got to inherit the promise that God had for them. But then once the people arrived in the promised land, things weren't that much better because it only took a generation or two before the people of God who were brought into this place started looking around saying, mm, look at all these other nations and look at all their gods. It just seems so much more appealing. And so the people started following after these other gods and finding themselves in the midst of really difficult situations because of their sin. And time after time, God would send a judge to come in and rescue and redeem the people. And yet time after time, they fell into the same pattern. Until we see at the end of the book of Judges, everyone doing what was right in their own eyes, saying because there was no king in those days in Israel, even though there was. Because God was meant to be their king, but he wasn't enough for them. And so the book of Samuel introduces this time period where the people started looking around saying, you know what? We just need a good king. 
All these other nations have kings and we don't want to follow God the way that he wants us to follow him. And so they started looking for a human king to stand in that place. And so then comes Saul and there's some ups, but mostly downs. Then comes David. And even though he's far from perfect and has all of his issues, he is a king that follows God as much as he can. And we see some, some prosperity in the people of Israel. Solomon, things are still okay. But within a couple generations, all of a sudden you see this kingdom break apart. And a few generations more as again, the people start looking around and worshiping and following other gods in place of the one who is and who had done all of these things for them, the kingdom falls into exile. And it gets to the point that it's so bad that as God is speaking through the prophets, we see the prophet Hosea and his entire life is a picture to the people of Israel about their own unfaithfulness. And the entire book is written in the format of an ancient divorce document, where God is in essence saying, if this is what you want, if you want separation from me, I'll give you separation and you can see exactly what that looks like and what that feels like. And that leads into this time in between the testaments of 400 years of silence from God. But then in comes Jesus. And Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection, brings about a covenant that cannot be broken. That for anyone who trusts in the name of Jesus, anyone who believes in Christ will be saved from the inside out, will be sealed by God and marked for all of eternity. And nothing can ever take that away. And as a reminder, he even gave us a meal that we'll participate in today to remind us of the assurance that we have in our salvation. But even still, just like the people of Israel, we struggle and we sin. And at times we wander away from the life that God has called us into. And we live in this weird in-between living in between a deep union with Christ and a relationship with Jesus that at times is passionate and close and intimate and then falling to the other side of chasing after our own idols and falling into patterns and rhythms of sin. But when we look at Revelation 19, we see that there's coming a day when those who trust in Christ for salvation will be made whole. And we've been talking about that all through the book of Revelation. That is the trajectory. That is the end of the story here, that one day Jesus is going to return and restore his good creation and all of his followers with it. And we talk a lot about the fact that he'll take away our sin and the effects of that sin, the sickness and the death that comes from that. But we also have the promise here that not only will we be made whole spiritually in regards to sin and sickness and death, but also in our union and our relationship with Jesus. And so in Revelation 19, we see a celebration of God's triumph over his, his worldly enemies, but also a party in heaven, celebrating the victory of God, but also the eternal union of Christ and his church. And so we're gonna look at the first 10 verses of Revelation 19 this morning. And this is the word of God. It says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell to his feet and worshiped, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. And, brothers, and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we just thank you for the end of this story. And the fact that you are our resurrected king that you are the victor of the battle and that you invite us into that same victory. And that there is coming a day when we'll be able to sit at your table for all of eternity in perfect union and relationship with you without the stains of sin holding us back. And so God, as we look at, at this passage today, help us to look forward in victory and expectation and excitement. And God, help us to see our present lives as opportunities to worship you in advance and to follow you wherever you lead. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If we go back to Genesis 2 for a second. I've officiated a bunch of weddings now. And if you've been to a lot of weddings, chances are you hear Genesis chapter two quoted, where we see this incredible picture that as God beautifully brings these two people together, forming and fashioning woman from the side of man and bringing them back to become one, we see this blessing spoken over the married couple. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And if you go to weddings, you see a lot of imagery in the wedding ceremony that reminds you of this. We have all kinds of unity things. I've seen a bunch of them now. There's unity candles where two people light one candle. There's unity sand where people pour sand into a thing. There's a unity cross. I did that once and it was kind of like a puzzle. And so the, the couple brought this and I'd never seen it before. So I didn't really know how to do it. And puzzles are a unique choice on marriage day because you're so nervous and their hands were shaking. But it was really beautiful as they brought this thing together that reminded them that they were united in Christ. 
Taking communion as a married couple during that wedding time is a very special way to remember that God is bringing you together, even just in the layout of, of most wedding congregations. You have people that come from the bride's family and the bride's friends. You have people that come from the groom's family and the groom's friends. And so it's not just the uniting of two people, but the uniting of two families and two social groups all coming together for the celebration of this incredible spiritual thing that God is doing in the lives of these people. In the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us that our marriages should be pictures of the gospel and should be testimonies to the union that the church has with Christ and a foreshadowing of what Jesus is gonna do once and for all. And now here in Revelation 19, we see this picture of a cosmic eternal marriage between the church, the people of God redeemed and saved by Jesus and Christ himself. And I love the way that this introduces it because we have this victory cry when we're talking about God triumphing over the powers of evil in the world. And then immediately that flows into this marriage supper feast where it says, then I heard the sound of the voice like a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder. I just, I love that John uses that imagery again, that we've seen through the whole book of Revelation these natural elements of thunder and rumblings all around the throne of God. Now those rumblings and that thunder is made by the voice of the people of God crying out in worship. And what they're saying is hallelujah for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then John gives some commentary here saying, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So we have two parties here. On one hand, we have the groom, the lamb of God, Jesus the one who was in the beginning with God and is God and was God and all things were created in him and by him and through him and for him. That Jesus is the groom of this marriage supper and he is the one who loved us long before we drew our first breath. He is the one that while we were yet sinners gave himself up for us, reaching down from his rightful place in heaven at the right hand of God, meeting us where we were, loving us as we were, and offering himself as a pure and holy sacrifice to redeem and save us and buy us out of our sin and into eternal life. And then you have the picture of the bride, the church. And I love the, just this, this, this corporate language of the entirety of the people of God, the multitude of people throughout all generations all over the world who were saved and redeemed by Christ. This is the church saved by Jesus and made pure by his death and by his resurrection and the faith given to them by Christ. And even when we look at the language of, of how they were dressed, how we will be dressed, it says it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And I love the juxtaposition of that with how Isaiah describes human righteousness. When he says that our righteousness is like filthy rags, 
that it's nothing before God, that we have nothing to offer God. But now because of the work that Jesus has done, he gives us those fine linens. He gives us those bright white clothes. He takes our old filthy rags and throws them away and wraps us up in the righteousness of Jesus so that we're able to live out those righteous deeds that he's called us to. And it's this beautiful picture of the final seal on the relationship between God and his people. And it is perfected and it is eternal. When I read this passage, I think about the words of Jesus and John. When he looks at his disciples and he calls them to abide in me. This language of of resting in Christ and having all of our living and breathing and moving in Christ. And that's the commandment for anyone who trusts in Jesus. We should abide in Christ and move in Christ each and every day. But because we still do wrestle with our flesh, we still do wrestle with our sin and our brokenness. We live in this constant rhythm of abiding and avoiding. At times, feeling so intimately connected with Christ passionately worshiping Jesus when we sing and when we pray, speaking to him freely, coming boldly into the presence of God. There are times when we feel just so close that when God whispers, we hear it. And yet there are other times when we have seasons where our sin just grabs us and pulls us away, constantly leading our attentions and our affections anywhere other than Christ. And sometimes it gets to the point where we feel as though we've wandered so far that we can't even see Jesus, like our boat has drifted so far out that we can't see the shore anymore. And we go back and forth and back and forth. But one day, we have this promise that Christ will bring us in once and for all. And these things that keep us from looking at him will be made very clear what they really are. As we see the fullness of the radiance of Jesus, all the things of the world, as the old song says, will grow dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And we will, as we're going to find out here in these latter chapters of the book of Revelation, sin will be no more, neither will shame, nor sickness, nor death, because all of these things will pass away and we will be able to stand before God like the refiner's silver, pure and whole, made right by Jesus, and we'll get to abide in him for all of eternity. This is the hope that we have in Jesus. So often, we rightly think about being restored from all of the physical ailments and brokennesses, from all the emotional heartbreaks that we've endured in this life, from all the pain and suffering with which we've had to deal. All of those things are true. We think about the rewards of eternity, when we're talking about an inheritance fit for Christ that God is going to give to us, and we use the language of heaven and new heavens and new earths and all this beautiful thing, and it's true. But the ultimate reward that we receive for our trust in Christ is Christ. And the fact that just as we were designed to walk with God in the cool of the day in a perfected garden, we're gonna see that restored, redeemed, and renewed where the people of God can walk with him each and every day. And there is nothing that could top that. This is the hope that we have, that we will sit at God's table and be in his presence as his people forever. It's a beautiful marriage that nothing will ever separate. But not only do we have the picture of this marriage here, but there's also a picture of a blessing. 
And we've talked about the Beatitudes, I feel like a lot over the past three major sermon series that we've done. Of course, in the book of Luke, when we looked at the teachings of Christ through the book of Luke, we talked about the Beatitudes. We mentioned them in our study through Genesis. And now here in Revelation, we've talked multiple times about these upside down blessings where Jesus talks about people being blessed who are not ordinarily thought of as blessed, saying, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are you when people hate you and persecute you. These don't sound very much like blessings, but we know that Jesus was, was creating this understanding of this upside down kingdom where the last are first and the first are last, where the least are greatest and the greatest are least. And Jesus promises that even a life that is difficult and hard is rewarding and blessed and we find our identity in Christ. And now here, this angel comes to John and he says, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, who are they? We've talked about this as the church, obviously. But what kind of people make up this church? Because so often it's easy to think in our, our especially very American mindset, but even all throughout history, there's been a thought that it's good people that earn the, the rewards of gods or deities, and it's bad people that earn the punishment. But something is very different here about the gospel. Because when Jesus gives some parables in the Gospels about wedding feasts, it's a very surprising story that Jesus tells. Because he tells a story about a master who's going to have a wedding feast for his son. And he sends out invitations to all the people inside the city, all the nobility, all the people with great wealth and great power and great influence, and they all reject the invitation. And so the master, out of his anger, sends his servants out beyond the city walls out to the people who are ostracized, out to the people who are overlooked, out to the people who don't belong. And those servants take that invitation out and the people who receive it are people who have no business being there. People who could have never imagined themselves coming inside the city walls, much less going into the house of the master. But Jesus says, no, these are the people invited to my wedding feast. And that's good news for us because that's us. The Bible says there's no one righteous. There's no one who follows after God, that all have sinned and fallen short of God's goodness and God's grace. All of us, because of our sin, live outside of God's city. And yet Jesus came outside of those walls to offer that invitation to anyone who would believe. And so gathered around this table and this picture of God's grace and mercy in Revelation 19 are people of every tribe and tongue and nation who don't belong there, who have all done something that is offensive to God because we've all sinned and fallen short of his glory. None of us who could afford the right clothes to walk up to God's table. None of us who had anything to offer. And yet God loved us so much that he reached beyond what seemed impossible and calls us in. And we have this incredible picture of followers of Christ from all different places, experiences, and backgrounds at the table with Jesus, blessed by Jesus. And this made me think about the old song, It Is Well With My Soul. Because one of the lines there says, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And for most of my life, Growing up hearing that song, my thought of what that means was a little off, I believe. 
Because my thought was, no matter what happens, no matter what comes in my life, it is well. It's okay. God can handle it. God can take care of it. It's fine. We just hunker down. We deal with it. We go through it. But I don't think that's what old Horatio meant when he wrote that song. In the midst of incredible heartbreaking, soul-crushing tragedy. He wrote those lines as a follower of Christ saying, no matter what comes in my life, it is well, it is good, it is beyond okay, it is blessed because I don't find my hope in these earthly circumstances that can rise and fall, but I find my identity and my hope in Christ. And so because of that, no matter what may come here and now, I am blessed because I am fitted and made for eternity and nothing can ever take that away. And so in the same way, no matter what our lot may be here and now, we are blessed. We are part of this community around the table of God. If you have put your hope and faith in Jesus, then we are blessed by our identity in and our union with Christ and the promised eternity that we have with him. And as John hears this, it's just too much for him. (laughs) The angel says this to him. He says, these are the true words of God. What a profound sentence uttered there. He's saying, this is absolutely true to the core because these are the words of God. You can literally take this to the bank. You are blessed. Even as John is writing this in exile, these words must have been so sweet to his ear and restoring to his spirit. And so he just does the only thing he can think of. And he falls down on his face to worship this angel. And the angel says, oh, no, 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 no stand up, buddy. I understand. I understand the motions here. I understand that it's really got you going, but you don't want to worship me. And I love how the angel just addresses him. It's so beautiful. He says, no, no, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So I'm not any different I'm probably a little cooler. It's probably a pretty, uh, pretty spectacular looking thing compared to John. But he says, I'm not any different than you. I'm just a fellow servant of God. Don't worship me. Worship God. And he directs all of that attention, all of that affection, all of that devotion, right back to the place where it absolutely should be in the one who made it possible. One day, we will sit at the table with Christ. If you've put your faith in Jesus and you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, this is your promise. This is your inheritance. And so we'll be able to sit at the table with Jesus for all of eternity. And we will be perfected and made whole. And we're gonna talk about some of the details of what that looks like as we move into Revelation 20, 21, and 22. And so that's the hope to which we cling. But until then, We worship in expectation of that. We listen to the words of that angel. As he he directs all that attention to, to, to God, we do the exact same thing. We see this promise that we have in Jesus and we look at that as our hope of eternity and our only response should be to fall on our knees and our faces and to lift all of everything that we have up to God in worship and in expectation. But also we get to practice for this. As we come to this table, 
as Jesus took the old Passover meal that was meant to push forward to, for, so people could see God's greater salvation coming, Jesus takes the Passover meal and makes it about himself. And so now every time we take this meal, we look back to the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also we look forward to the day when we sit at a new table with Christ. And as we practice, we remember we come to this table in communion with Jesus that he is here with us, that he meets us at the table to love and encourage us. But also we come together in communion with one another, people of different backgrounds and experiences, all coming to the table from every tribe, tongue, and nation, taking the bread, taking the cup, and remembering that we have been united with Christ and united with one another through him. And through this table, we find peace and strength to continue following Jesus in the hard places, realizing that no matter where he leads us, no matter what takes place, it is well with our souls because we are blessed in our identity in Christ and our union with him that even though now it's imperfect and shaky because of our sin, will one day be perfected once and for all. And so as we prepare to come to the table in just a moment, if you've put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you're going to have an opportunity to come to the table, take a piece of bread, take a cup, and then we will take this communion meal together, just as we will one day in the presence of God. But as you come to the table, I'm going to encourage you to come in victory, because we know that Christ has conquered the grave, that Christ has already won the battle against sin and shame and death, and one day he will finish it once and for all. And so we can approach this table with confidence and boldness, knowing that Christ has made us just in the eyes of God. But also come in expectation, knowing that one day the things that do make us feel uncomfortable coming to the table, because we know our sins, we know our weaknesses, we know our doubts and our shortcomings. Know that one day those will all be taken away by Christ and we'll get to stand in his presence filled with the radiance and glory of his righteousness and his grace. And so I'm gonna pray. And as I do, I wanna encourage you to take that time to quietly reflect on the communion meal, to pray, confess where you need to confess, to be thankful where you need to be thankful. And then as I finish the prayer, I'm gonna invite you, if you've put your faith in Christ, to come and to take a piece of bread, to take a cup and return to your seat. And then we'll prepare to take this little meal together in remembrance of Christ and what he has done, but also in expectation for what he one day will. Let's pray. Almighty God, we just thank you and we praise you. for the picture of these three tables throughout scripture. God, the Passover meal, that reminded the people of Israel of your provision for them and your redemption of them, but also called them to look forward to a day when your son would come into the world to bring a sacrifice once and for all. God, the table of the last supper Jesus had with his disciples as he took that Passover meal and said, this is about me, my body which is broken for you, my blood which is poured out for you. The fact that he shares that with us now. For God also for the table in Revelation 19 and the hope that we have. And 
one day we will get to sit at your table transformed and made new by the righteousness of Jesus and our relationship with you will once and for all be perfected. So God, as we sit in the middle of all of that, help us to approach the table with humility, knowing that you have made this possible. Help us to approach it with boldness, knowing that you have made us worthy. God, help us to approach the table with expectation for all that you're going to do in our lives and all that you're going to do in our eternity. And we ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus.